You are listening to Slaves to the Algo with Suresh Shankar, a show about AI, big data, disruptive technology, and strategies for your business to stay ahead in the age of relevance. Brought to you by Crayon Data. Hello, viewers and listeners. I'm Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data, an AI and big data startup. Delighted to welcome you back to the next episode of Slaves to the Algo. That's right, Slaves to the Algo. Steps to the Algo is my attempt to demystify the age of the algorithm by having experts come and share their views on what exactly algorithms are doing in our personal and professional lives. Will it lead to utopia or dystopia? And today I'm delighted to have a person that I consider an algonaut, someone who's been involved in algorithms for a very long time. I'm delighted to welcome Peng Ong. Peng is a technopreneur, an investor, and an all-round leader in the field of technology in both the US and in Asia. He currently is the founder and managing partner of Mongsil Ventures, but Peng's claim to fame is that he has actually been an entrepreneur who has had multiple exits with Match.com, Interview, Woven, and Accentuate. He basically also has a very interesting take. He calls himself an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs. I've known Peng for a long time, and I'm really delighted that he's joining us on the show. Welcome, Peng. Thank you. Uh, Peng, you know, I think uh, I always like to start by, you know, while this is all about business in some way and how algorithms are changing, I like to start by asking people a very slightly more personal take on this, right? And I think you've been involved with this whole business of how do you create algorithms for a very long time. Um, my question to you is, you know, if you had to look at two or three algorithms that really kind of changed the way you think about life or affected your life, either as a person or your professional life, what would they be? What would they be instinctively come to your mind? Um, I, I think the first one is uh, what we've been calling the feed flow AI. You know, when you go to something like TikTok or Facebook or Instagram, there's something behind the scenes that shows you look at this next look at this next look at this next right what they do in those algorithms causes people to just sit there and look at the, the next thing and the engagement uh, increases uh, either revenues or uh, click-throughs on ads which is revenues anyway okay. um, and the interesting part is that algorithm is syncing up with your brainstem Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is going, yeah, look at this, look at this, look at this. And you're not even thinking about it. You're just going, okay, okay, okay. And um, I, I think that's a very interesting um, discovery that the algo guys have made uh, that really uh, digs into the fundamentals of the human brain and how, how we, we absorb things. And I think it can be used for bad, it can be used for good, or it can be used to make money. So uh, I, I don't necessarily say it's all bad because you can use that to increase your health, uh, your focus on financial um, success, etc. Right? Or your friends, uh, focus on building relationships. Uh, but of course, it can be used to make money for the companies. So, so, but that's really fascinating. Do you think the algorithm people actually talk to the neuroscience people and did this or do they stumble upon it? And you know, the reason I'm asking you this is that you are a founder of Match.com and Match was literally one of the first companies that 
actually used algorithms in terms of matching people to each other. Yeah. And this is way back in what, the 90s when yeah, 90s. even the word algorithm wasn't a common thing. So is this a combination of algorithm and neuroscience or the algorithms guys just do the technology and then stumble upon this neuroscientific yeah, uh, discovery? I, yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, this is not probably not one algorithm it, it's a whole bunch of uh different algorithms put together by different groups and i'm sure some groups have talked to neuroscientists some groups just run this on large numbers of people and you know like hundreds of millions of people viewing every day and they figure out what works what doesn't you know it, it uh, you can discover these things by understanding the underlying principles of how our brain works or you can just uh, statistically discover these algorithms through machine learning. And when you did Match.com, what did you do? Did you, uh, you know, could you, again, like I said, it's a long time ago, but it's such a fascinating thing because almost the foundational yeah. company in some ways behind this. Yeah, I, I'm sure there were other CTOs of Match.coms that came on and talked about this over the decades. Um, but when we first started, uh, it was very, very primitive. <laughs> Uh, there were, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 parameters, like political leanings, are you a Democrat, are you a Republican, uh, you like cats and dogs, or cats and or dogs, um, and uh, some basic question, height, weight, uh, we actually even took into account um, income, if you wanted to share that with us. Um, and uh, we sort of just assume that people that are similar in, in ranges, height, weight, etc., uh, uh, would get along better. Um, very unsophisticated. But what I discovered about uh, matching humans is that it's not that hard. Otherwise, there won't be so many of us. Right? <laughs> it's kind of obvious. <laughs> uh, so. So, uh, yeah, it, it, if you take two human, random human beings and, and you try to get them to match, maybe it won't work. But if you took a thousand men and a thousand women and you, you try to match them, uh, the chances are you can shuffle them around until there's a lot of matches, right? So uh, it wasn't, I don't think it wasn't, uh, it was that hard a problem. So. No, but it's it's interesting that you say you started off with a few attributes and you did the matching on that basis. And yes, you said it primitive, but it wasn't primitive at that time. Uh, basically, you. But now, when you come forward and you look at people like, I mean, even Tinder is passe now, right? Bumble and people like that. You know, the guys who are coming out. How exactly have these matching algorithms evolved to today? When you look at them today compared to what they were doing, how much more sophisticated are they? What do they use? Could you shed some help, shed some light for, for our listeners? Um, uh, to be honest, I haven't been uh, following the dating business that much. Uh, but the ones I've seen, and you can imagine having founded Mash.com, anyone doing a dating company ends up finding themselves okay, to you. my door <laughs> doorstep. But um, uh, it, a lot of it is just people having different spins on how the matchup happens, right? Some some go on dinners, lunches, you know. Uh, some is just an initial conversation online, etc. So so it's not about the algo. Uh, it's about letting humans discover um, what works for them, right? Uh, so a lot of it is not about trying to get massive uh, uh, matches, but but 
there is some level of efficiency in in dating programs, which is why they're so successful. Well, it's very simple. If you walk into a room with a um, hundred people, and even if your ideal match is there, the chances are you might not even meet him or her and have a chance to talk to him or her, let alone get the sec uh, first date, etc. Right? Um, because it's one in a hundred. It's very difficult for you to find one in a hundred uh, when you have an hour or two at a party. Mm -hmm. and this alcohol and friends all over the place. Um, but if you ask the computer, you know, here are the, you know, 50 things I like and, you know, things I don't like, etc. You just take a whole bunch of data and uh, you run it over that hundred people, you know, the matches pop out just very, very clearly. Right? Mm -hmm. And so when you go out on a date with this person, you know, your, your long-term your long-term um, matches are there, so it's just you have chemistry, right? So it gets uh, relatively simple, right? Because if you have chemistry, then long-term you have you don't have problems. Oh, I, I guess I should say this uh, um, for dating. Uh, it's the opposites might attract, but it's the similarities that sustain. So if you're building long-term relationships, right? You need value systems, background, culture, belief systems that are very similar, right? Um, and you need to understand each other so the daily interactions are not full of friction. Right? So, so that's that's very interesting, Peng. Because um, let me try and do this right. I mean, you talked about the algorithm actually doing the matching at scale, and then you talked about the chemistry. Does the algorithm trigger the chemistry, or the chemistry? actually trigger the algorithm yeah and i know it's both cause and effect i know it's yeah, hard to do that but, uh, but you're 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 a person with actual practical experience in this <laughs> not that practical i i i found my wife pretty early so. um the who knows right uh we just uh i, I don't think uh people have done enough work in this area to understand cause and effect um, I, I do know, and I think this is an interesting area, that the mating rituals of human beings all around the world have changed because of uh, uh, online dating, and uh, someone needs to go study that. <laughs> I think it's that's very that's interesting. very interesting. In what way? In what way? Um, well, the 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 experiments, the matchups happen a lot more, right? Mm -hmm. Than than before. So behaviors and uh, how people interact, like I've. Uh, read, I haven't observed this, but I read about how people would have like um, serial dating on the same day. <laughs> so you have uh, like three three meetings scheduled, one hour, second hour, third hour, and all you do is meet and assess, and then you know you 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 say things very bluntly. Hey, look, I don't think this is gonna work, and most of the time you say that because you know. <laughs> Interesting. But um, isn't that the way of, you know, in, in, in India, they did call parental matchmaking, right? They take you to three different places and you do the same thing and somebody yeah, else does the assessment. No one else does it. I guess parents were the original matchmakers. Yeah, absolutely. But but it's very uh, interesting, right? Because if you really look at what we're saying, the the human mind doesn't seem to your parents doing it or your society doing it to then one primitive algorithm, as you called it, but literally the start of this. So now more and more sophisticated algorithms 
So it seems really that it's not the technology is changing human beings it's so much as enabling through, you know, just okay. looking at more and more data. It's not really yeah. fundamentally changing anything. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Um, I think, but it's changing social norms, it's changing uh, what we can do with our brainstem. Yeah, and that's and I, probably I a know. podcast by itself to talking to you about brain stems and how the reptilian mind of the human <laughs> mind person works. But I want to go a little bit further into that. It's very interesting. You said you meet people and then you suddenly realize other things that maybe the algorithm knew didn't necessarily reveal, but you find other things because that's how a lot of these things happen. And mathematically speaking, whenever I try to talk to a client about the idea of precision and recall, and the fact that these two are fundamentally, you can set the, I mean, it's like, um, uh, you know, if you increase one, you reduce the other. Most people don't seem to understand that, you know, the, that there's either a rabbit hole of, re, you know, of precision and you say, I've got to be right. Or you open up the aperture and allow them to see new choices. And, uh, you know, isn't this really the core of matching, finding that little balance between position and recall mathematically or how many new things that I tell you was is how much do I make the algorithm trust you? I mean, you trust the algorithm. Yeah. Um, it, it's um, tr trust is an interesting word you, you choose to use. Uh, I've always said uh, trust is an emotion. Systems help you build trust, but in the end, it's an emotion, right? Let, let's say uh, blockchains, people say, uh, sorry, I'm going off in a different tangent, yes. but it's an example. Uh, block, blockchains are, um, uh, are what trust is about, uh, you know, because if you have a blockchain, you know the transactions happen, so you can have trust in the system. But actually people could say, and, and there's been situations where people go into the blockchain and edit stuff, right? So, uh, um, so, it, so long as you, as a human being or consumer, you go, no, I don't trust that system because I don't trust that guy or whatever, right? The, however pure the infrastructure underneath it, doesn't matter, right? I still don't trust it. So uh, your, your system on matching, if people trust it, uh, it, there could be even placebo effects, right? So who knows how, how our brain works to, in, uh, in reaction to the trust we have for certain things or the mistrust we have to other things, right? Um, it's a very complicated system up here. Um, so Absolutely. I, I can't sit here and tell you, you know, uh, if you do this on an algo, you get the trust of people. And if you don't, you don't get the trust, you know, because the marketing yeah, but, thing, all that matters. But I think I like the way you put it, that there's trust with the emotion, but the system works towards building the trust. And one of the things I'm taking away, even as an entrepreneur and building a product company that does this for a living, is that one, I talk to my engineers, I talk to clients all the time saying, the way a system builds trust is, you focus on precision, show enough stuff that the customer relates to and likes, because then they say, okay, this seems to know me. And you increase the aperture slowly over time to kind of focus on the, the recall, yeah. things that, you know, you take one step at a time and you go wider and wider as you discover that. And um, I'm sure these guys have figured it out or the algorithms have figured it out, which brings me to, I think, I mean, this is a fascinating discussion. I think the whole, the whole podcast could literally be about this. I don't know whether you read your reader clearly. So am I, have, I don't know whether you read Clara, the latest book with, uh, by Kazuo Ishiguro. And he talks right. about how everybody's going to have a personal agent and the personal agent really, I mean, it's like that movie, her, right? Yeah. Do you think that world is 
going to come? How far away? We have it in some ways already. It's just that the the agent, which is the mobile phone or the laptop, doesn't doesn't have a human uh, uh, interface, right? It, it's it's all different pieces. All you need to do is glue it together. You can schedule your meetings. You can uh, you can schedule travels. You can buy things, all that stuff. But just by you know having a slightly more sophisticated human interface, and that's it. You already have that thing. Think about what we can do today from our mobile phone or, or from our computer. Right? Um, uh, the capability is there. The interface is not there. Right. Uh, you, you don't need a super, super, you know, self-aware AI, etc. You just need an AI that will go uh, turn on the lights and boom, lights turn on. You know, uh, that's what you need. And we have all that capability. Now. It's just not properly integrated to, to one. Uh, Amazon is trying to do that. A lot of people don't yep. like, the, you know, privacy issues around that. But, you know, I have uh, Alexa sitting outside. You know? um, so... It's going to get there sooner than um, And you feel, and probably I'm going to reserve this question about whether it's utopian or dystopian till the end. But moving on, uh, Peng, I mean, I think you did Match.com, like I said, a pioneer in algorithms. You did uh, work with um, Interwoman, which is very interesting because I think almost one of the first companies to use unstructured data in a big way. Now everybody talks about it, but yeah. Inter Interwoman was a content management company before there was one and then a lot of software on unstructured data, you didn't accentuate. But now when I look at where you reach and you're trying to, you know, you're, you're, you're running your own startup in that. And how did the, how did the dots add up? I mean, no, like I said, you didn't match, you did. How did your journey go from there to actually becoming a, a venture capitalist? Yeah. Um, so venture capitalist is a slightly different step, but if that's a theme I would run through all my companies, including uh, Monster, is uh, what, what's the ridiculous state of the world I'm trying to fix? Right? Why, why, how does my existence address the state of the world that I think is kind of silly or nuts? Right? Uh, so in, in the case of uh, Match, uh, Match, Match's parent company was actually called Electric Classifieds. It wasn't just dating, right? So it was, how do you find something to buy or sell online, right? Or, or transact online, uh, as opposed to newspapers, right? Um, so the, the, the previously, if you wanted to find something, your, your fingers got ink on it, right? Because you're looking- mm, Your fingers are doing the walking. Through, yeah, <laughs> through the classified ads. And, this made no sense at all. You know, you, how many S can you read per minute, right? Not that many. And you know exactly what you want. So why don't you get a computer to search for it? So our idea was to have all the classifieds of all the newspapers put themselves on us, right? Of course, there were all kinds of competitive concerns, etc. And newspapers were, were resistant to uh, technification or digitalization so long until most of them went bankrupt, right? Uh, um, so, so that didn't quite happen, but matched it out of that. So the ridiculous state of the world was, you know, human beings were using human brains to and, and newspapers to find things. Right? Mm -hmm. No sense. Um, so, so in a woman was about uh, managing millions of parts that need to come together uh, based on 
maybe even thousands of uh, knowledge workers need mm -hmm. to come together to form one website. Uh, and it didn't make sense what was happening. People are running around all over the place, breaking things as they check things into the website, etc. And we provided the structure for people, right? and and so on. I'm not sure if you want me to talk about the. the, the no, but I think I have discovered the algorithm to getting money from Mungsil. An entrepreneur <laughs> needs to rock up to you and say, "Here is the ridiculous state of the world I'm trying to solve." Yeah. And that triggers your brainstem. Yeah, it does. It does. And, but you know, um, do you know, I mean, I mean, like, you know, you're doing investing, I'm sure you see thousands of, we've talked about this, you see thousands of people coming to you and saying, listen, I have a big idea. Um, and I have two questions for you. One is, do you see the world of investing in venture capital itself changing? Are you using AI data to actually sift through all of this and say, I have heard of companies that are saying we can predict the next unicorn and all of that. And is the world of AI and data going to come to venture capital investing itself? And maybe I should just, uh, ask you that question before I go to the next one. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, ultimately uh, what I love about this domain is we're all about innovation and, um, and, and throwing algorithms at the stuff we do uh, as um, investors uh, makes sense, right? What people are trying to do. Um, if I talk about it from a technical point of view, the, one of the worries I have about that approach is the sample size is not big enough, might not be big enough. You know, you, if you look at successful AI uh, learning algorithms, they, they tend to work on millions or tens of millions of data points. There aren't mm -hmm. that many startups. So, uh, and, and the other problem is sort of what you parameterize, you know, some learning systems is very easy. If you look at Go, you know, it might not be a, a simple problem, but how you digitize that problem is, is pretty straightforward. You know, you got 64 by 64 and black and white, and that's it, right? Uh, think about the world of uh, startups and what factors are involved. There's a market itself, and that's hugely complex. That's an entrepreneur, and how do you parameterize a human being? Is it as simple as dating or is it more complicated? Don't know, right? So you got to throw in all those parameters. Some parameters you can't even measure properly, right? Because they're in here or in here, right? Yep. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, we're, 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 we're tracking, uh, I guess, psychographics from the perspective of human beings. So we're conscious about talking about this person's leadership skills, uh, his um, EQ, all that stuff. We do have these conversations, but uh, we're not clear how to digitize this so we can run an algorithm on it. So mm -hmm. our algorithm is use our human partners to, to, to do this. Make work. those assessments. Yeah. But you, do you think that world will come just like, you know, now trading, I mean, High-speed trading is all essentially algorithmic and most decisions, investment decisions in the stock market get made like that. Do you think yeah, that I, world is going to come? I, I, I think... Uh, but why Combinator is trying that, isn't it, in some way in the yeah, early... It's doing larger phase? numbers, yeah. And then, you know, only a few succeed, so you can figure out. But even why Combinator, I'm not sure they have large enough numbers to be very accurate. They, they, they could probably have some learnings. Uh, they have, what, 100 per batch and three batches a mm -hmm. year, so 300 a year. 
that's not a lot of numbers as a lot as far as machine learning goes, right? Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think it's going to be tough for a while. I, I think there needs to be some improvement in um, machine learning before that can happen because uh, I think there are new, new uh, directions of research on how to use uh, smaller sample sizes mm -hmm. to create the correct learning. Like like we, we actually don't learn on million pieces of data, right? We learn on dozens. And so, and we could be wrong, right? Um, but but there, there's a lot of work trying to figure out those kinds of algorithms. And when those come about, then I think this is uh, a more, uh, an endeavor more likely to succeed. No, sure. Uh, Peng, I think, uh, have you seen the second part of the question? When mm. you obviously invest in a lot of startups that do AI data, you know, uh, and, and, and besides other things, are you seeing any new interesting startups? I mean, nothing confidential, anything that you're exciting new ways in which people are using data or algorithms in Southeast Asia, globally, anywhere else? Yeah. Um, so, so first of all, I think COVID has gotten people serious about doing something with their lives. For whatever reason, we're seeing a whole flood of you know, new deals and very well thought through deals, very serious entrepreneurs, right? We're busy trying to fund them. Um, so I, 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 you know, I think that's a really good side effect of this pandemic. It's gotten people thinking about the meaning of their lives and what they're trying to achieve. So I, uh, I'm just making that note because uh, that there's, it's affected my life very directly because I'm very, very busy these days because mm -hmm. there's so many good deals coming out. Um, that said, um, if I were to try and draw one, one interesting, albeit not uh, all-consuming trend, but it's a trend that I've seen uh, in some of the thinking entrepreneurs, we've talked about this, is uh, what I've been calling the movement or the transition from uh, transactions to relationships, how you focus businesses uh, uh, on relationships instead of transactions. Um, interesting. It's like uh, how human beings used to behave in kampongs and villages, you know, where you know you know each other, and the tra a transaction is just a side effect of trust and some needs, right? You go to the uh, grocery store, you, you pick up a bunch of stuff, and then you realize you forgot your money at home. The the guy there says, "Nah, don't worry, pay me next time." I mean that that's a focus on relationships, not trust. So how do you use that kind of thinking? for businesses, you know, you think how fragile trust is, right? And it's, it blows my mind how little even the biggest companies uh, focus on it. Um, imagine, you know, uh, we were still young and I went out with your girlfriend, right? Mm -hmm. Trust is gone forever, right? Just one, one single act and, and trust is gone, right? And yet when um, people build websites and they sell your data and, and you know, they, they allow people to spam you because they pay them. Um, you know, they don't realize the trust is just gone, right? Um, and uh, it, it'll sometimes next to impossible to get back. Uh, the, the problem in our world, um, uh, specifically the tech world, is uh, we've been looking at the entire world as transactions because we can do transactions well, right? We don't do relationships very well because we don't understand what that is. Uh, or at least we don't try to understand what those are technically, right? 
Um, and and so we, we focus on cranking up relation, uh, transactions because they drive top line, right? Every textbook you read on any technical uh, textbook, Ruby on Rails, you open it up, see here's how you improve your transaction rates, right? Um, mm -hmm. And um, so all the top most valuable companies in the world in technology, they're all driving transactions, right? Um, so how do you, the, the question we are asking, you know, I probably shouldn't reveal the companies, but uh, one of the questions we're asking is long-term, how do we, you know, um, ensure that the cost of acquisition is still a transactional view of life? How do we ensure the cost of acquisition doesn't go through the roof because somebody else is selling that to us, right? Google, Facebook, et cetera. And we, we figured if we can build really strong relationships with consumers in a particular domain, uh, let's say, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, what you care about, your health, right? What if we just become a friend to you uh, on the health front, right? So anything health uh, wise that happens to you, you go to this portal, come to us and, and interact with us to figure out. If you think about it today, if you have a health issue, right? You don't end up going to a portal, right? You, you do some Googling and all that stuff, but in the end, you find your friend who's a doctor and you, you talk to that person and you find another one you talk to them, right? And, and so why can't that be a machine, right? Why can't that thing that you trust? No, I, I can see another area, which is recruitment, right? I mean, you know, I still have people from 25, 30 years ago work with me who any job before they go, they call me. It's relation. Right? I don't, I don't even know what they do, but they call me and say, I'm doing this. And what do you think? And I'm like, dude, you're like three steps ahead of me. <laughs> but that is with that relationship of, um, you know, careers would be, I think, a great one where, yeah. you know, people would be about relationships, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, definitely. Short, uh, what, what we call um, high value, uh, low transaction rates products are best for that kind of environment. Because if it's low transaction rates, you, you can't really try to push the transactions too much. Right? So you focus but on... Hey, I have a question for you. You're a VC. Yeah. You have to give a return to your investors. Yeah. What you're now telling me is that your philosophy is actually long-term and you're trying to look for companies that are actually trying to find a ridiculous state of be, you know, of, of the world and solve that, which is a, generally a large problem. Two, you're saying you're looking for people who want to focus on relationships. Yeah. How is your algorithm resolving return? Was this this kind of long-term success? Yeah, well, your VC algorithm. Yeah, if if you look at why LPs invest in VCs, LPs are the limited partners that invest in, in VC funds. Um, they 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 specifically do it with the perspective of um, uh, long um, higher returns based on illiquidity, meaning you can't take your money in and out, right? So. Uh, the more we can get that, the more we're doing our jobs for our in investors, right? Um, the, the problem with the VC world is it's uh, too easy to do technical trading now, right? You, you crank up the uh, revenues, you sell it, you flip, and you get your 5x and everyone's happy, right? It's too easy to do that now. But that's technical trading is based on, you know, certain ways the economy is 
is, is going right and not always possible right? uh, and, and i think now is going to be it's going to get tougher and tougher uh with this bubble right and the kind of valuations so so in general monso doesn't focus on technical trading we focus on building core value long term so that that's in fact in sync what i just told you is in sync with what we're trying to do by the way the the interesting thing about this uh, setup is if you're going after uh again a healthcare example right people are sick people need healthcare today so you can do the transactional stuff it's what you do alongside the transactional stuff that determines your scale you know five ten years from now i think if you if you just look at your business very transactionally everyone's doing transactions how are you going to differentiate yourself long term how are you going so to be that's very interesting it's very interesting and i don't know whether it's true but i did read that an ancient or an older chinese culture in chinese you turned up to your um, to your doctor to your shinsei and you gave him a, whatever the equivalent of 100 dollars is and that's it and basically he was paid to keep you healthy so because he treated you for free through the year yeah. so that's the relationship because and then cool. he's like not giving you <laughs> no, not he's trying to give you not a transaction, right? Take yeah. the medicine and go away. He's trying to keep you healthy, which is a relationship. Yeah. And um, but this is fascinating, and we can go on. And I have time for a couple more questions, uh, Peng, before I let you go. And first is um, one of the things that we always talked about is your view of the world. The world is divided into companies built on bits and atoms. And um, I'm going to let you talk about it because you describe yeah. it in a fascinating way. Yeah. So I think a lot of people uh, miss has have misunderstood. This, including some of our own uh, uh, analysts, um, um, when when I talk about uh, uh, bits over atoms, um, it, it is true that if you push bits to create value versus atoms to create value, it, it's much more capital efficient, right? Uh, a lot of the the value creation I've seen, uh, even in very physical things like Ninja Van, for example, one of our portfolio companies is doing more than a million parcels uh, delivered every day, right? So you can imagine the scale of this company. It's parcels, it's, it's physical atoms, right? Um, so what am I talking about? Why, why is uh, creating value from bits so important? Well, Ninja Van, I think is one of the most efficient um, uh, last mile logistics company I was going to say in Southeast Asia, but maybe even in the world, I, I don't have any way to prove that. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of algonauts, using your word, uh, in the back room, you know, uh, optimizing the, the way uh, they track goods, the way they sort goods, uh, uh, goods, parcels coming into the warehouse, the distribution points, and then how they move out, right? And that's how they get the efficiency with a lot of these uh, algorithms. And, and of course, very efficient execution of the, the distribution. Yeah, so would it be fair to say that you're saying that whether you live in the world, whether you're a company dealing with atoms or bits, unless you're using bits to actually make this whole thing dramatically efficient, you're not going to succeed. Is that? that that's the point. That's the point. Okay. Uh, we have this concept of de-atomization, right? So mm -hmm. de-atomization is not uh it it doesn't mean make all your uh atoms disappear it means minimize the number of atoms you use in a system right 
So nice. let, let, let's say um, uh, if you uh, have a very inefficient uh, supply chain, right? And your, your warehouses are always empty versus full, right? So you de-atomize the stuff in the warehouse by pushing them up down the supply chain, right? You, you've effectively created a much more efficient uh, warehouse uh, supply chain system, right? That's just one example. It doesn't mean you, you just give up all your warehouses and, and all your goods, right? You're still pushing goods, but you're minimizing the number of goods. If you minimize the number of workers needed in the, in the warehouses or in the distribution points, you are you're increasing productivity or increasing profits. So the idea so is human beings, etc. you you want to try and minimize the numbers required. So I'm going to, I'm going to have another podcast with you, Peng, and I'm going to add a third word to this thing, because I think when I've been reading about it, uh, you'd see this book out here, uh, somewhere at the gene, genes, bits and atoms, because I think the gene <laughs> is fundamentally like the bit in some way. And yeah. now a lot of the work seems to be about how we actually, whether it's the mRNA vaccine or people are trying to do the same thing to genes as yeah. they're trying to do to bits, right? Probably another topic, uh, but I have to ask you, and, and I know that you're uh, probably have very strong views on this. I've left it for the last, but um, we can come back to this in another podcast. Your view about how AI will change the nature of work, not just in the next two to three years, but over the next 10 years, you believe that there's going to be some fundamental shifts I know in this yeah. space. Yeah. So what are the biggest disruptions that are going to happen as a result of use of data and AI yeah. in jobs? So, so I come at it from and this problem or this observation from two angles at least one is my background is ai right i did some graduate work in ai and i've been i've got lots of friends in the domain throughout the world um and i look at what they do that's that's number one number two um i spent time uh, investing in companies that think about productivity how do i get my agent let's say uh insurance brokers agent to be two times, three times, four times more productive than the average agent outside, right? So this is a very standard way to approach human intensive kind of um, businesses, right? Where you need a salesperson or you need an agent like a recruiter, as you mentioned earlier, or, or a, a doctor, you know, how do you get that doctor, recruiter, sales uh, agent, to be multiple times more effective. You know, even account mm -hmm. multiple times more effective than the normal you know, human being. And uh, this is where a lot of these services industry, services is about half of GDP, right? We're not talking about agriculture, manufacturing, mm -hmm. mining, all that stuff. We're just talking about services. And, and uh, it's about half the GDP and you already see a lot of stuff happening that people don't necessarily say it's AI, but look at e-commerce, right? Uh, how much has it taken it over is. retail? You know, think about a job or a career as a salesperson in, in a department store, you know, and how that's being disrupted the last you know twenty years. So, so I think the the innovations are going to come quietly uh, on both fronts. Right, uh, the, the AIs are going to get better and they're going to get more and more deployed by the service industry. Right? Um, and what's going to happen is that there are going to be fewer and fewer jobs. My, my 
uh, economic way of looking at this is um, um, AI would drive the productivity through the roof, the productivity mm -hmm. of almost anything we do in the services industry through the roof, right? Uh, which um, I don't know for sure this will be really, really the case, but I think it might drive the value of labor towards zero. Down. That's the case, right? So if you if you look at it from an economic perspective, and if that happens, you know, it's a very fundamental shift in our economy. Uh, if you talk to any economists uh, and you ask them, what are the assumptions of capitalism, right? Well, one of the assumptions is that the value of labor is not zero. True. <laughs> right? True. Uh, if it's zero, how, how does capitalism work, right? So, so I'm questioning the very, given where we are going with technology, uh, I'm questioning even, you know, it, it, especially if we, we in the tech industry succeed, what happens to this world we live in? Um, and uh, it's an interesting thought experiment. Uh, I, no, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of hold you to this thought experiment. I'm actually gonna come back and do another podcast just on this one area, Peng, because I think it's such a fascinating thing. We're setting in motion this revolution. We're already in it, and we are almost driving it fast. And, um, and I think it raises some fundamental problems. It's just gonna pick up and. Um, it's not just about the value of labor going down. You're seeing it in the economic disparity. And uh, again, just to give my listeners a hint of that, uh, you believe that this will actually cause more revolution faster than climate change will. Right? Yeah. So, I, yeah the, if you look at the curves coming, if you look at the curves coming, the, the increase in tech is just exponential. You've seen it the last 10, 20 years, right? Uh, if someone had told you 20 years ago, you'd be, you know, clicking on these small devices and ordering pizza and getting things sent to you from all over the world you, and, and talking to people all over the world, they'll think you're nuts, you know, just 20 years ago. Um, and now it's just everyday thing, right? And, uh, and it's going to go even faster, right? You, you know how technology gets adopted is going to be exponential. Uh, climate change, I think it's... It might even be exponential. I don't know, but so far it's been linear. <laughs> so we have time, and, and maybe if we can solve the the uh, what I, I guess I, I should just label it uh, the economic singularity, right? Then uh, the machines can solve the climate change problem. <laughs> That's a great thing to do. I mean, there is a possible dystopian future, but there's also a utopia that possibly awaits us. Yeah. Uh, Peng, I think I'm going to come back to you and possibly have another podcast just on this idea of the economic singularity, what AI will do. Yeah. Uh, but thank you so much for being on show. To my viewers and listeners, Peng Gong, highly successful entrepreneur among the earliest to create unicorns before the term existed. Among the earliest of Algonauts, a technology leader, a true visionary in the world of technology, and a venture capitalist. If you have a business that can solve a ridiculous state of the world or that is focused on relationships or transactions, you know whom to call. Thank you very much to my listeners for being on Staves to the Algo. It's available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. We release a new episode every Tuesday. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. Stay safe in the age of COVID and stay relevant in the age of AI. See you all next week. And Peng, thank you once again for a fascinating discourse into the algorithmic world. Thank you. Thank you very much.
If you enjoyed this week's episode of Slaves to the Algo, please rate, share, and subscribe. Visit crayondata.com to find out more. See you next time.